And as we get to Paul, uh, Paul's a friend of mine uh, from Sun Valley Community Church, and he has four kids. And so he knows all about the next generation personally, but just as a pastor, they have multiple campuses and are, and are always fighting the challenges of how do we navigate these kids and teenagers and point them to Jesus. And so I'm excited for you to hear from him today. Uh, a cool story about Paul is our projector that's shining this on the screen right now. Uh, came from Sun Valley Community Church. When we started as a church, we didn't have one of those shiny projectors. And so we reached out to Sun Valley. I don't know if you remember this. And uh, they just gave us, they gave us two projectors, right? That's how generous they were. Uh, we just needed one, Paul, but thank you for two. And, uh, and then they allowed us to buy that one for pennies on the dollar. And that's the one we still use today that's about to project scripture and worship on the screen for us. And so uh, Paul has been a blessing to us since the very beginning would you guys give a warm PBC welcome to Paul Alexander as he comes? Thanks, Tim. It's good to hang with you guys. Um, happy anniversary, man. <laughs> 11 years. Keep going. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, like Tim said, um, we met, goodness, this is probably a little over three years ago at a Starbucks off the 101, like over in Tempe, Chandler somewhere, and got to know your story a little bit, man, and... Uh, I'm really proud of what you guys are doing at PBC. Uh, Phoenix needs you to win. There are people who don't yet know Jesus who need to know Jesus. There's people who don't know what it means to follow Jesus who need to follow Jesus. And, um, man, PBC needs to win for the kingdom. And so it's, it's a legit honor for me to hang with you guys and be with you. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, uh, four kids. My wife, Lisa, and I have been married for uh, 21 years. And uh, we were joking earlier about, like, People, like, you've been married to 21 years, like, the same person the whole time? The whole time, the same person. And so we have four kids, Kennedy, Mia, Lincoln, and Wyatt. Uh, Kennedy is 13 years old. Uh, she's your typical firstborn kid who's, like, super cautious. Everything has to be just right and plays violin and, like, practices like mad. And uh, if she gets something wrong on a test, she gets upset. You know, it's just everything has to be just right for our, our firstborn kid. And it's a little-known fact, Lisa, my wife, is a firstborn. I'm a firstborn. My daughter's a firstborn. We have a firstborn son later on. Everybody else in the Alexander household thinks they're right all of the time. And so it's, like, just one big, you know, argument in my house all the time about who's right and who we should follow in the moment. So Kennedy, she's 13. Mia is 12. Uh, she's actually the brilliant one. She came home like to standardized testing. I kid you not, this has never happened in my life. Uh, 12 years old, she comes home from like the Arizona standardized testing and she goes, you know, how'd you do? How do you feel like it went? I think I missed one dad. And Lisa and I are like, you know, whatever. <laughs> she missed one. She gets that from her mom. She does not get that from me at all. She plays volleyball. She's super smart. She doesn't have to try at school. I tried at school, and I couldn't go to college because I thought there were better things to do in high school than go to high school. And so she's like the really good student in the family. Uh, Lincoln is nine years old. He is all boy all the time, um, pedal to the metal. He's the kind of kid, he's either going to grow up and do something fantastic for the kingdom and for Jesus, or he's going to spend his life in prison. One of the, you know those kind of kids? That's him. I mean, he's not a bad kid. He's just like all the time going in our house. And then Wyatt, our four-year-old, we just kind of call him the mascot of the family. He's just happy all the time. He's just happy to be with us. It doesn't matter what we're doing. He's just all in with us. Super cute kid. And uh, you figure after four kids, you know, you kind of get to be a better parent as it goes. And by the time the fourth one comes along, you just kind of throw some food on the floor for them. And they're... And they're... <laughs> They're good. The first one, like, burps, and you think you got to take them to the ER. You know, you're sneaking in at nighttime and checking on them. 
Um, it's just super different, you know. He's four years old, and we kind of had him later in life, and so it, we kind of joke around that we're going to go to his high school graduation, and it's going to be like, oh, you brought your grandfather with you. No, that's my dad, and it's just, it's just crazy, and in the Alexander household, it's pretty nutty. I don't know if you caught it or not. I have a 12-year-old and 13-year-old daughter, which means they're both in junior high this year, which means if the Lord brings me to your mind sometime this week, please pray for me. <laughs> So if you're a female and you survived the junior high years, you know, like, if there's a reason to theologically believe in the idea of purgatory, it's junior high. It's just, it's brutal. And so we're navigating all this stuff with our girls, and, and it is a scientifically known fact that the sigh of a junior high girl pierces the male eardrum at such a frequency, it causes so much pain. They, can, they learn to communicate so much without ever saying anything, and and they start running in herds and packs. You don't see like one junior high girl off by herself. They see, you see like herds of junior high girls, right? And they, and they always, they can smell blood in the water. They can figure out which one's like the weak link and they can all gang up on them. And there's this weird gossip thing that happens. And now with social media, that's even like exponentially, you know, made known throughout the entire universe. You can say something in junior high, it lasts with you the rest of your life. And it's just, it's just hard, you know? So we have these conversations with our daughters about, you know, how you're supposed to interact and follow Jesus as a junior higher and as a junior high girl. And uh, every once in a while, they'll talk about how they feel ganged up on and they feel alone and they're the only one following Jesus. And they, they're not the only one following Jesus in their school, but as a little junior high girl, they feel like they're the only one following Jesus in their school. Do you know what this feels like? Like to go to work or to be in your neighborhood and to try to do the right thing and try to make your marriage work and try to parent well and try to follow Jesus. You ever feel like you're like the only one doing that? Well, my, my girls know what it's like to feel that way. Jesus knows what it's like to feel that way. He knows what it's like to feel like ganged up on. We have this conversation with our girls. In Matthew 21 and 22, Jesus has just walked into the city of Jerusalem and is celebrating essentially what you and I as a modern church celebrate as the Holy Week, right? the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. There's literally days between him walking into Jerusalem and him going to the cross and dying in your place and in my place so that we may have life and have friendship with God. And something really weird happens. These different factions of religious leaders, the chief priests and elders, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, these guys, all don't, they don't get along on themselves, but they get along in this moment to gang up on Jesus. And in Matthew 21, 22, if you read the entire passage for yourself this week in your own study of the scriptures, what you're going to see is conversation after conversation after conversation of these guys just like drilling Jesus and lobbing questions his way, his way and, and trying to entangle him and trying to catch him saying the wrong thing and disprove, uh, you know, what he's saying and kind of thwart his following that he's building. And the chief priests and elders, they, they kind of go first in Matthew 21. And they come up to Jesus and, and they ask Jesus this question. And if, if you know much about Jesus in the New Testament, he's brilliant in his approach with people. Instead of like giving them an answer, he actually answers their question with a question, which, by the way, is a fantastic parenting technique. <laughs> Works with junior high girls. And so he answers their question with a question, and they say, hold on, we got to go check. And so they go, and they kind of huddle up, and they, they kind of get their minds together. And, okay, one, two, three, break, and they come back, and they say, we have no idea, Jesus. And they walk away. The Pharisees are way smarter than chief priests and the elders, though. They actually huddle up ahead of time. And they kind of get a game plan ahead of time. And they, they try to figure out, how are we going to stump Jesus, right? And they come up with what they perceive to be as the unanswerable question. And it's this. They come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? Which is a really good question. 
It's a really good question because if, if he says yes, then all of the people that he's got following him are going to think that he's pro-Rome, right? And, Jewish, and, and, and you know, the Jewish nation is under Roman occupation at this point. Not a real popular thing to say if you want to build a movement. If he says no, Rome and the IRS are going to show up and say, hey, we hear you don't pay taxes. He's kind of in a catch-22, right? Between a rock and a hard place. And again, Jesus answers in a brilliant fashion. You may know the story. You may have read it for yourself. And he says this. He says, hey, bring me a coin. And they bring him a coin. And say, hey, whose picture is on this coin? And they say, Caesar. And Jesus says, well, you know what? I'll tell you what. You give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You give to God what's God's. If you read the, the Bible, what you discover, and Tim talked about it a moment ago, is that mankind is made in the image of God. You and I. We're made in the image of God. Jesus is basically saying, you can give Caesar his coins or whatever, that's fine, but you, you belong to me. You're, you're made in my image. You give to Caesar what's Caesar's. You, you give to me what's mine. And the Bible says their jaws drop and they're like mortified and astonished and they walk away. Next up is the Sadducees. So you got the chief priests, the elders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It's just bam, 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 one after the other. It's kind of like this tennis match back and forth. It's almost like a, a rap battle, you know. And by this time, what's happened is there's a crowd that's essentially gathered around, and they're watching this whole thing go down, and they're watching people lob questions at Jesus, and they're watching Jesus, like, drop knowledge after knowledge and wisdom after wisdom and nugget after nugget, and they're all just like, whoa, Jesus, you know, all this stuff's happening. And by the end of 22, the Bible literally says that no no one dared ask him anything. I mean, he just completely shut their faces. Because it just, he's just moment of brilliance after moment of brilliance after moment of brilliance. And the, and the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they asked Jesus this question about, you know, the resurrection and all this, and he nails that to the wall. And the, and the Pharisees, they, they come back again, and they bring another question to the table. And, and here's what happens. Uh, the, the Pharisees, they end up grabbing a lawyer, okay? And so this is, this is what happens. Matthew chapter 22, uh, 23. You can grab your Bible if you want to. Super easy to find. First book in the New Testament. Uh, your Bible probably has a table of contents. Really easy to find. And you go to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to pick up in verse 34. This is kind of towards the end of that whole scene. And this is what he says. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees again, they asked him a question to test him. In other words, they're trying to entangle Jesus. They're trying to usurp. They're trying to thwart. They're trying to damage and stop this following that he's been building. They're trying to discredit him. And in verse 36, this lawyer's teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, out of everything that we have in the prophets, out of everything that we have in, in, the, in the Bible and the law, What's, what's the greatest thing? And he says to him, Jesus responds, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. Jesus basically wraps up this entire two-chapter scene by saying, hey, all of these questions you guys are asking, we can, we, can, we can land the whole thing with this. 
all the things about, you know, what law is most important? Should we pay taxes? Should we not pay taxes? What happens in the after? All this. Guys, listen. Love God. Love people. Love God and love people. And let me say, I think in modern church world, we've become inoculated to that statement. And what I mean by this is, what Jesus says is not just smart. It's not just biblical. It's brilliant. Jesus is the first person to take these two ideas and connect them in this way for us. In the history of the planet. And we've been riding on his coattails kind of ever since on the whole thing. So love God love people. So you, you cannot love God without loving people. You can't. You cannot love God without loving people. You can't say, hey, Paul, man, you're awesome. I love you. I like you. And then treat my kids like garbage. Those are my kids, right? You can't say, oh, God, I love you and come to church and worship Jesus. I love you, God. You're awesome. You paid for my sins, and I'm going to follow you all the days of my life and then treat our family, friends, coworkers, neighbors poorly. Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't, don't separate those two things. That's why, like what Tim was mentioning, what happened in Charlottesville, which is really close to where I grew up. Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with that. That's just evil. That's just sin. You can't stand and say, I love you, God. I'm following you, Jesus, and treat people poorly. As, as a church, as people who are trying to follow Jesus, our calling is to treat all people kindly all the time. Doesn't matter what their sexual orientation is. Doesn't matter what their political persuasion is. Doesn't matter what their social economic status is. Doesn't matter what their gender is. Doesn't matter what their ethnic, ethnic background is. Our calling, if we're followers of Jesus, is to treat all people kindly, always. All the time. And you, you might be familiar with the words of Jesus. Uh, the New Testament talks about this, that Christians, we would be known by our... Not a trick question. As, as Christians, we're supposed to be known by our love. Love. Love one another. That we would be, actually, we would be known by that. You, you fast forward to modern day time. If we were rewriting that or re-saying that today, the way it would be said is we'd be known by the quality of our relationships. Like, man, the quality of our marriages, the quality of our friendships, the quality of our relationship with our kids. You cannot separate following God and loving people. And that's where Jesus starts with this whole thing. And then he does something else that's absolutely brilliant. He connects the dots with them, and he quotes an Old Testament scripture that all of the chief elders and priests, all of the Sadducees, all of the Pharisees, and all of the onlookers, if they'd ever been to the temple before, would know. And that's the last words of Moses, the great patriarch of the Old Testament, the great patriarch of, of Israel, kind of the most important person to the Jewish nation who ever walked the planet. And he quotes their favorite hero and his last words before he dies. And, and here's, here's the context. It's, it's what's called to common, it's commonly called to is the great Shema. Shema is simply a Hebrew word that means to hear. And and the people of Israel take this so seriously that they believe that you need to quote the great Shema twice a day. 
They believe that, that if, if you're dying, you, you want the Shema to be the final words on your lips. This is such a big deal to Jews. And the context of this is, you know, Moses has led the Egypt, uh, the uh, uh, Jewish nation out of slavery from Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, uh, this is the whole, Moses goes, hey, let my people go kind of deal. And the plagues, and they go out, there's a pillar of fire by night, smoke by day. You know, the staff, and puts it in the water, and the water parts. I mean, movies have been made out of this before, you know what I'm talking about? So you guys are with me. And so all of that has happened. And they're, they're finally right at the edge. They're going to they're enter the promised land. And Moses is getting ready to hand off leadership from himself to a young man that he's been mentoring by the name of Joshua. And, and Joshua's getting ready to lead Israel into the promised land. And he'd be the one that would lead them in there. And they'd conquer that space. And they'd inherit everything that, that God had, had given for them to inherit. And before that happens... Moses kind of gets the people of Israel around for one final, like, farewell, going away, swan song speech. And basically on his deathbed, Moses begins to remind them of everything that Jesus had done for him. Because oftentimes we need to be reminded, right? He begins to remind them of everything that Jesus had done for him. How he had conquered Egypt through plagues. By the time that all thing was done, Pharaoh was like, please, get out of here how the Red Sea had opened and then collapsed on Pharaoh's armies, how God had miraculously provided food for them in the desert when they were hungry and had nothing to eat, how God miraculously provided water for them when they were thirsty and had nothing to drink, how God was gracious to them when they kind of went their own way and they forgot what God had told them and how God was loving and kind and patient with them. And we pick up in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's again, super easy to find. It's at the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Super easy to find. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to pick up on these are Moses' final words to the people of Israel. This is what Jesus quoted to the chief priests and elders, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and everybody else who was listening. So check this out. Hear, O Israel, the Lord... Our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, Moses is saying, I get that you guys are getting ready to do something big, something you've never done before. You're getting ready to go somewhere you've never been before, have experiences you've never had before. And if you're going to do something big, you're going to have to do it with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might. Have you ever tried to do something big before? Like a brand new job, like you graduate from college and you get your first like real job that's giving you a paycheck. It's not like a volunteer role. It's not an internship. It's like a real job. You have a title. It might be a little title, but it's a title, right? It may be a little paycheck, paycheck but it's a paycheck, you know? You're doing something big. You're chasing your dream. You ever met that woman or that man and your heart just goes, you know, pitter-patter, 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 waka, 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 you know, and you're like, she's the one. He's the one, and, and so then pursues this dream of capturing the one, and you, you stand at the altar, and you're doing something really big. You're pledging your life and your love to this person, right? In times of sickness and in health, and, and you're telling them how you're going to behave when all the bad moments come, because love's not something you feel. It's a decision that you make. It's a commitment that you uphold. And so you ever try to do something big like that? You ever had kids? How many, how many parents are in the room? I'm just curious, like, who's in the room? <laughs> 
So a bunch of parents in the room. So you have that first kid, right? And isn't it funny, by the way, a buddy of mine just had a kid this last week, and he's like, oh, I had a kid. Dude, we take so much credit, guys. Like, oh, I have a son. I, did, I, I had a son. No, you didn't. You were there for a portion of it, but, you know, all the work, you know, she did that, right? So bless you, ladies. You're awesome. And uh, sorry for the fall of man and all the pain and chopper. So you can talk about that with Jesus when you see him one day. But no, I mean, you, you get that kid home for the first time and you put him in your crib and you're like, you look at each other and you're like, what do we do now? Right? And, and it's, I mentioned it earlier, they burp, you know, or you sneak in at the middle of the night or you put a video camera in their room so you can see them while they sleep or you put the little monitor. How many of you guys have like monitors in their kids' rooms? Am I the only weird, creepy stalker parent? Okay, yeah. So yeah, you do that so you can hear if something's happening, you know. They put a Lego in their mouth and choke. You know, what is, all these things race through your mind. I have no idea where I was going with that. I'm just talking about all my parenting woes right now, apparently. <laughs> you, ever, I mean, you try to do something really big for God, and, and having a kid's big, and getting married's big, and getting a job's big, and, 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 and loving someone's big. And Here's the deal. You cannot do something big with like, eh, I'll give it a shot. You can't. Like, would you really want to marry someone who's like, you know, I'll try to love you when you're sick. And... I'll probably love you when you're poor, and I'll think about loving you when you don't treat me kindly. Who's going to marry that dude? He's going to be living in his mom's basement until he's like 43 years old. You know, it's just, it's not going to happen. If you're going to try to do something big for God, you've got to deal with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And Moses knew this. And said, so if you guys are going to really do this, you're going to occupy this promised land, this future, this promise that I have, that God has for you, it's not going to happen easily, even though it's something that God has for you. Listen, there's things that God has promised to you. There's things that you believe God is leading you towards. There are things you believe you need to go chase after and do that you're pretty sure it is from God. Just because it's from God doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Moses knew this. He says, you're going to have to do it with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Verse, uh, verse 6, and these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And this next verse, this is who the Shema is for. So why am I saying all this? Because of this, verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your who? To your children. Say that again, to your children. The Shema is for the next generation. That is what this is for. If you think about what Moses is doing in this moment, he's securing future generations for the nation of Israel. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And how should we do that? Put them in a classroom? Nope. Send them to school? Nope. What if it's a Christian school? Nope. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Listen, in Israel, they take this so seriously. 
so seriously that as you walk around Israel, you'll actually see people. They've actually taken the Shema. They've written it on little pieces of paper, and they put them in little boxes, and they've tied them around their wrists and on their head. Like, no joke. You'll see that. And then if you've been to Israel, you'll also see on the construction of, of homes and buildings, there's this thing called a mezuzah. It's like a little tube kind of thing, usually at an angle near the doorpost. You know what's in the, door, what's in the mezuzah? The Shema. We're talking thousands of years later, Israel is still taking Moses literally. It's a big deal. I think if Moses could re-say that for us, he'd basically say, hey, you need to figure out how to help the next generation know God. You got to just like follow Jesus and just invite the next generation to follow him along with you. Now here's the deal. Moses, Moses dies like all of us do, and Joshua becomes a leader of Israel, and they go into the promised land, and they, re, they receive the inheritance that God had, you know, given them. You know, you've, you've seen, you probably, when you were a little kid in church. How many of you guys grew up in church, by the way? Just so, yeah, so like, you know, a bunch of you guys grew up in church. So you guys, you know the whole story, you know, Joshua goes in, and they, they run around the walls of Jericho, and the trumpets, and it all comes, you know, crumbling down. The little, little kids' VBS songs about this, right? That all happens. And as they go out and they take their inheritance and they're, they're spreading out through all the land, they begin to do something that all of us begin to do at different times of our life. They begin to compromise, right? They're like, dude, God, do we really have to kill all the livestock? I mean, that's like super bloody. I mean, I'm not even a butcher. I mean, that's not even a good business decision, right? We should at least keep the livestock, God. I mean, do we really have to kill all of the inhabitants of the land? I mean, I know you said we, we were not supposed to marry them and all, but like killing all of them, I mean, that's kind of mean. Might be racist. You could play that card in that moment. I mean, you can even say, like, wait, hold on, that one's kind of cute. Do we have to kill that one? I mean, how about we just kill all the ugly ones? And I'm not kidding you, this is what happened. And, we, and they begin to compromise a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. And, and listen, we're not all that different. I mean, we, we rationalize all the time. We tell ourselves rational lies, right? We say things to ourselves like, you know, we're just, I just, I'm just going to look once. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not a habit. It's just every once in a while. We do things like, like on, our, on our taxes, the goal, I, I talk to people, that this, taxes is like a game in North America now, right? It's like this game. How do we keep as much money out of the pocket of the government and in our pockets? And so I've talked to you guys. They'll, they'll like shave different things on their taxes. So and they, and the goal of tax season is to keep as much money in our pocket as we pay, even if it means like shading the truth a little bit. You're actually considered to, to be wise in the United States if you keep money out of the government's hands. People actually admire that kind of stuff, right? It's crazy. I mean, we, we tell ourselves all kinds of of rational lies. We, we do this at work. We come in like a, a couple minutes late. We, we take our lunch break a little bit too long. We leave a, a little bit early. And we say, you know, I work really hard while I'm here, man. And we, we tell ourselves these little rational lies. And it shows up in, in little, little ways. Well, listen, what happens to Joshua is the same thing that happens to all of us. They grow old and they die. Really not sexy. That is the end of that story for Joshua and his life. Judges chapter 2, verse 10. I don't, I don't have this on the screens for you, but I want to read it for you. Um, you go look at it yourself. At the very end of Joshua's life, Judges chapter 2, verse 10, 
Um, it's one of the scariest verses in the entire Bible, by the way. Write it down, Judges 2, verse 10. You're going to want to come back and talk about this verse with the people that matter most to you. It says this, and that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, it's a really polite way to say they all died. And there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Let me read that again. After they all die, Joshua, you know, Moses handed leadership off to Joshua. They conquer the land. And Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they all grow old and they all die. It happens all. And what Joshua leaves behind is this. There arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord and did not know the work that he had done for Israel. One generation removed, guys. That should scare the bejeebers out of us. One generation away from seeing the plagues firsthand and living through them. One generation away from walking with Moses, having conversations with him, seeing him put his staff in the Red Sea and their waters part and then they collapse again on Pharaoh's armies. One generation away from actually physically following a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. One generation away from this thing called manna, literally means what is it? Because they didn't know. But God miraculously providing food for them in the desert and water for them. Guys, one generation away from the walls of a city falling down because they marched around it and blew trumpets. One generation's amount of time, a whole nation says they didn't know God nor anything that he had done. Guys, the church that you and I are a part of is one generation away from not existing in North America. That's not something weird. That's not something scary. That's not like prophetic. That's real. The church is one generation away from not having what you have, from not seeing what you see, from not experiencing what you experience, from not knowing who Jesus is and the great exploits he's done for you. There's no guarantee that our kids and our grandkids are going to follow Jesus. There just, there just isn't. Now listen, I know usually this probably isn't true of PBC, but usually in North America, people go to church and they leave feeling like a little bit guilty, right? Like usually church is the kind of place you come and you kind of get some, some stuff heaped on you and realize, oh crap, you know, I'm not following Jesus. I'm going to renew that fervor and passion. I'm going to try harder, Right? I'm going to be more efficient as I'm following Jesus. I'm going to confess the sin. And sometimes you'll hear like, dude, that sermon was freaking awesome. Punch me right in the face. It's great, you know. I'm not sure like going to church and getting punched in the face is like what's needed, right? In fact, if you read Jesus' words, if you learn about what it's like to actually follow Jesus, he says, hey, follow me because my burden's actually light, not heavy, right? Come learn the rhythms of life from me because I'm not going to put pressure on you. I'm going to take pressure off of you. So what I'm saying is, if you're following Jesus and you're feeling pressure, you might be doing it wrong. Okay? If, if you're following Jesus today, or you're trying to follow Jesus today, and you're trying really, really hard, 
and you're putting forth lots and lots of effort, you might be doing it wrong. Because Jesus says, hey, follow me because my burden is light. My yoke is easy. God doesn't put pressure on us. He takes pressure off us. That's, by the way, what the cross was a little bit about. That we don't have to work our way to heaven. That God and love and mercy and grace worked his way to us so that we could be friends with God again. So let me let you off the hook. I don't, what I don't want you to do is leave here thinking, well, crap, we're one generation away from the church not existing. I'm an awful parent. What are we going to do? That, that's not what I want to do. And uh, to do that, I want to tell you about my awful parents. <laughs> I, I kid you not. So let me tell you the story of my parents for a second. And I'm going to tell you God can use anybody, even you. Okay? So my mom and dad both grew up in Southern California. Um, they both had, like, train wreck environments that they grew up in, like really super unhealthy environments, not the kind of family that you would want your own children to, to grow up in. And uh, they moved away from all that to get away from it, and they actually met Jesus in their early 20s. They're both first-generation first Christians. You know what that means? It means their families before them, their parents before them didn't know Jesus. They were the first ones in their families to know Jesus. And so with all of that weird dysfunctional baggage that they brought into their marriage, and with all that, like, they don't, they don't really know what it means to follow Jesus, and not, they're just trying to follow Jesus as best they know, they did decided to have something, uh, they decided to make a decision and have kids. By the way, uh, if you're wondering if marriage is hard and why marriage is hard, you're imperfect. You know this, right? So you take one imperfect person and you put another imperfect person together, you know what that makes? It doesn't make perfect. It makes a mess. And then you decide, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll have kids. That'll make it better, right? You bring another imperfect person. It just it, it compounds exponentially, all right? It doesn't get better. It doesn't get easier. It's just more little sinners running around bumping into each other, you know? This is why we need Jesus, by the way. So mom and dad, they're not perfect. They got all this crazy baggage that are coming along with them. I can remember in, in the ninth grade, um, I'd, I'd said yes to following Jesus as like a little 11-year-old sixth grader. And in the ninth grade, I felt called by God to go into ministry. And this is, this is how brilliant my dad was, okay? Um, like, it's nighttime. All the lights are off in the house. Uh, you know, I was really stupid as a young man. You know, I'm praying. I felt compelled by God that he deserved more than just my soul. He deserved all my career, all of that stuff. And I remember praying and, and thinking, God, I'll do anything you want me to do. Just don't send me to Africa where my feet turn blue and fall off. I, I literally played that. I, I kid you not, that's really what I prayed as a little, you know, 13-year-old freshman in high school or whatever it was. And um, I go into my dad's room. I knock on the door. All the lights are off. Hey, Dad. Knock, knock, knock. Hey, Dad. Dad. What? I think God wants me to go into ministry. No, he doesn't. Go back to bed. <laughs> that was my loving father great advice about going into ministry. And the next day he's like, dude, you don't want to do that. You need to go get your business degree. Go make some money. You don't need to do this whole ministry thing. Not great parenting in the moment. Later, I, we have this conversation. He lives, near, lives in the Phoenix metro area now, and I had this conversation with him. He goes, I thought if I could discourage you from doing it, it wasn't from God. I'm like, I'm not sure that's a parenting technique I would have used in that moment, Dad. You know? So really imperfect parents. Listen, I, I, but I learned a lot of things from very imperfect parents. I learned to be generous with my money. I got an allowance as a kid. You guys give your kids allowances? Your kids get money from you? Yes, no, maybe so? No, you guys just don't bless your kids with money. Okay, I, great. My parents were a little more generous than you, apparently. 
and I got this thing called an allowance. It's like you do chores and you get paid for it every week, okay? You should try it with your kids. They can earn some money by doing chores. It's fantastic. But they gave me these three little envelopes. One was for giving, one was for saving, and one was for like whatever I wanted to spend it on. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is the way God designed money to be used. You give first, you save second, you live on the rest. You give first because that honors God. You, you uh, save second because that builds wealth, and you live on the rest because that teaches us contentment in life. And so as a little kid, I had these little three envelopes, you know? And so I, I've been giving to the church since I was like, you know, five years old. Like you hear sermons about tithing and giving and being generous. I'm like, why are we even talking about this? You know, this is super easy, you know, you just give first, save second, live on the rest. This is not rocket science, right? But I learned that as a little kid. And you realize you, you learn the rhythms of life from your parents. And my parents were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but that's one thing I picked up for them. You know what else I picked for, up from them? Serving other people and putting other people first. So I grew up in this little church plant. You don't know this. I grew up in this little church plant in Washington, D.C. I didn't know that it was a church plant because it was just my church that I grew up in. And like wooden pews, the whole thing, choir robes, like super old school church. When you think church, it was my church. And uh, I grew up in this little church, and I can remember actually going to this church and physically building the church with my dad. I'm like a little kid hitting hammer, you know, nails, all that stuff, you know what I'm talking about? And like I remember like raising the walls of the church and laying the carpet and painting it and all that stuff like that. And so I learned how to serve other people by just serving with my parents. It wasn't like weird. It wasn't like contrived. It wasn't like, hey, Paul, you need to go do this, but I'm not going to do that. They just followed Jesus as best they knew how, and they invited me to do that with them. It's not as rocket science as, as you might think it is. I learned how to submit to the authority and honor authority in my life by being around my mom and dad. So my dad, he would pack my brother and up every weekend, and we'd throw the lawnmower in the back of the truck. You know what we did? Every week, we'd go over to my pastor's house, and we'd mow his yard for him. You don't have any grass, so they're not going to mow your yard, dude. I'm just saying. It's Phoenix. Oh, I do have grass. Oh, yeah, he has grass, so, you know. <laughs> I, listen, I, I learned to submit to the authority of my life and honor authority in my life by doing this with my dad. You know what else I learned from my parents? I learned how to receive and give forgiveness. See, in my high school years, when I had better things to do with high, than go to high school, um, I got involved with a young lady and that relationship went in a really bad direction. And my parents found out some stuff about that relationship. And um, I was super embarrassed. And uh, my dad calls me back into his room. I pretty much thought my life was about to end. You know, your dad says, come with me, son. And he's super calm but stern about the whole thing. And he shuts the door behind him. Usually dad would just blow up, but he was being calm. And, and I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> he shuts the door behind him. He goes, sit down. That's why I sat down. And he went for his Bible. And I'm for sure no, I'm going to die now because he never did this. He, he never, this is the, listen, I'm, I want you to catch something. Mom and dad were very imperfect people. They didn't follow Jesus like the perfect little Jesus followers. They just did the best they could. But in one moment, in one moment that probably mattered more than other moments, he opened his Bible up and he shared with me a story about King David and Bathsheba. And he shared with me another verse of scripture how after David was a complete idiot and lived for himself and his lust, that God even later still called him a man after his own heart. And my dad looked at me and he said, son, Jesus isn't done with you yet. Listen, parents, you don't have to be perfect. 
just need to follow Jesus and invite your kids to do that with you. And there are some moments that uh, they're going to matter more than others. And some of those you're going to get right. And some of them you're not. And when you don't, the most godly thing you could probably do, and the most beautiful thing you could teach your kids in that moment, is to simply go to them and beg their forgiveness. And tell them you were wrong. Do you know what a blessing it is to have a father look you in the eye as a son and say, I'm sorry? Some of you men in this room, you have no idea what that feels like. And yet your hearts long for that. I've had that blessing of my dad tearing up at the dinner table with my wife and I and my mom and looking at my wife and apologizing to my wife for the home that I grew up in that wasn't perfect and then apologizing to me. I'm telling you, parents, you can do this. You can follow Jesus and invite your kids to do the same. And listen, I, I know that uh, as a parent, there's a lot of things you're chasing from a career and a livelihood and position. And it could be, guys, that the greatest contribution you make to this world is not something that you do, but someone that you raise. And yeah, man, it'd be cool to get that money and go on that vacation, or it'd be cool to get that money and go buy that new house, or get that. The greatest contribution you make to this world may not be something that you do. It may not be something that you're known for, or a title that you have. It may be someone that you, that you raise. Last thing, because there's a bunch of people in this room who aren't parents. There's a study that was done back in the early 2000s out of UNC Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And in this study, there's the first study of its, time, of its kind, largest of its kind, and since then it's spun off multitudes of studies and all kinds of books that have come out in the Christian world saying that every adolescent's leaving the church and all this stuff, which isn't completely true, by the way. And in this study, they discovered there's two things that make a bigger difference, that have more weight, that have greater impact, to impact the trajectory of the next generation that you have power to control than any other thing that you could do as a parent. Or as an adult, two things. You know what they are? Number one is this, and I'm telling every parent in this room can do this. Have dinner with your family on a regular basis. Out of all the things you could do as a, as a family, the top two that change the trajectory of a kid's life, whether they're going to be involved in at-risk behavior or not, the first one was whether that family had dinner together on a regular basis. You can do this. My, my dad... He was the executive director of a naval submarine base, worked with the Joint Chiefs up in, up in D.C., and he left the house every single morning at 4.30 in the morning so he could get home and we could have dinner together as a family. He didn't know about the statistic. He just wanted to be with his kids. And parents, kids know whether they want to be with them or not. And the second, the second one is this. The first one is dinner as a family. The second one is this. And by the way, how many of you guys are not parents and you're in the room? Yeah, a bunch of you guys are not parents. You thought you were getting off the hook on this one, didn't you? You're not. Because it, it takes all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. It takes all of us to hand our faith off to the next generation, not just parents. And here's the other statistic. So one was dinner together as a family on a regular basis. The second one was this, is that there would be five other adults involved in the life 
of a kid other than a mom and dad, a coach, a Sunday school teacher, a small group leader, on and on and on. That if a kid had those two things, dinner with their family on a regular basis and five other adults, that they would not be involved in at-risk behavior. You want to seriously, quantifiably moneyball the next generation, that is how you do it. And the truth is, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for a friend of my family by the name of Judy Feather. And I know some of you guys, are, you don't have kids, and you're thinking, I can't really do anything to impact in that generation. I'm not cool. Why would they want to be around me? I'm telling you, Judy Feather was not, I mean, with a name like Judy Feather, Judy was, <laughs> Judy was not cool. You don't meet a lot of Judys anymore, right? Judy was not cool. She had big, frumpy hair. It was curling gray. She had big Coke bottle glasses. She was my babysitter. So mom and dad both worked because, uh, you know, to make ends meet and all that stuff like that. And so they both worked, and I'd go to her house after school. When my mom came home, she picked me up, and that was it. And uh, she's most of the time, like, telling me what I can't do as a babysitter because I'm like a little boy growing up, and I'm getting into everything, right? So she was also a Sunday school teacher at the church I went to. And one night at my church, had little wooden pews and the choir robes. We had something called revival services. Does anybody know what that is? Revival services? It's they, little churches back in the day. I, I guess churches still do this. They have special services midweek. They bring in a special communicator, and, and it's going to be super cool, and they're going to be preaching all week long. And I, I don't know why people would even do this, but they do this now, and they did it then. So we had this revival service, and the cool thing was there was a guy with an acoustic guitar that came, and he's playing like acoustic guitar, and that was like the big cool thing. And uh, because we had an organ and a piano and all that stuff. And at the end of the service, they're like on the eighth frame of the song, Just As I Am. They're waiting for people to come say yes to Jesus, a big invitation. I don't know if you've been in a church like this before, but that's what I grew up in. And I'm sitting there, and the Holy Spirit's compelling me to say yes to following Jesus. Man, I, I don't know if you've ever experienced what I've been experiencing at this point. But my hands are like digging into the little wooden pew in front of me. And I want to go forward and say yes to Jesus, but I'm nervous and I'm scared. And as like a little 11-year-old kid, I'm just like standing there crying. And it was Judy Feather who noticed what was going on. And Judy comes up, she puts her arm around me, and she looks at me, and tears in my eyes, and she looks at me and she says, do you want me to go with you? And that's all it took. And I said yes to following Jesus that night. Because I would not be here in this moment if it weren't for another adult who wasn't my mom, who wasn't my dad, who said, do you want me to go with you? There are kids and teenagers that need you to go with them. And just be with them. And be their fan. And be available to them. And follow Jesus and just invite them to do the same thing. Guys, this is not rocket science. What happened in the nation of Israel does not have to happen to the next generation at PBC. What happened in the nation of Israel doesn't have to happen to your kids. Your faith doesn't have to die with you. You can leave a legacy. And it's not as hard as you think. You don't have to send them to a Christian school. You don't have to do some deep theological training in a classroom with them. You just need to follow Jesus and invite them to follow Jesus with you. I know some of you guys in this room, you've been parents for a little while and you've, you've blown it. You've had some moments where you probably need to go back and apologize to your kids for 
Some of you guys in this room, you don't have kids yet, and you thought, you know, maybe one day when I have kids, I'll get involved in the next generation, and you've blown it because you've missed your opportunity to invest in the next generation. You know the best time to plant a tree? You've heard this before? 20 years ago, right? You know the second best time to plant a tree? Today. You can't go back and relive moments, but you can redeem it. You can ask for forgiveness today. And you can invest in the next generation today. Israel's story doesn't need to be your story. And you can do this. Just follow Jesus and invite them to come with you. Let me pray for you guys. Father, I love you. And um, I'm grateful for people like Judy Feather. I'm grateful for my parents, as imperfect as they are, and um, as much as they got wrong. I'm grateful for their apologies, and I'm grateful for their struggle of following you and just inviting me into that struggle. And God, I pray for the men and women in this room that uh, are really wrestling with the tension of making their mark in this world, helping to realize that the greatest difference they, may, they make in this world, the biggest thing that they do on this planet may not, may, might not be like some accomplishment. It may not be some kind of title. It may not be some salary. It may be who they raise and how they hand their faith off to the next generation. God, I pray for people who are in this room who aren't parents that have shirked their responsibility and have never woken up to the fact that you haven't just entrusted the next generation to the parents in the room, you've entrusted the next generation to the entire room. So God, I love you. I pray that these, this church would be a church that simply follows you and invites the next generation to do that with them. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.